Welcome to the Better Questions Podcast. In today's episode, we're talking about faith and science. The ever dreaded topic that no one really wants to talk about in the church, but it's a conversation that needs to be had. So we talked with Dr. Andrew Root today. We got a much smarter Andrew to weigh in on this. Much, (laughs) much smarter Andrew. Dr. Andrew Root is the Carrie Olson Balson Professor of Youth and Family Ministry at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And he recently wrote an amazing book that I've read. It's called Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Youth Ministry in the Age of Science. But it's a book that's all about how we begin to approach this topic of science within the church. He focuses specifically on a youth ministry context, but it's got stuff that's relevant to all areas of the church. And man, it is an amazing conversation. Yeah, it was uh, it was really, really, really good. And uh, I've this has always been my favorite subject uh, to study um, science and specifically even like chemistry uh, and life science and physics. And so just hearing his perspective um, on how we can approach um, not even simply reconciling science with faith, but how we can go deeper and really get specific on how we can uh, shore up a specific scientific uh, study with a specific experience with our personal God. So it was just such a helpful reframing for me and just really exciting to, to talk with somebody that's um, done scientific work professionally. Yeah, and if you're new to this podcast and you don't know what our goal ultimately is or if you're someone who lands very strongly on one side of evolution or creationism. We just want you to know that the goal of this conversation is to find healthy and unifying ways of having the conversation. And so what you'll find is a conversation about how to remove assumptions and biases and define how the Bible reads us and how the scriptures lead us to action and not necessarily about arguing one way or the other. So we hope that whoever is listening, you you just be open to this conversation. So here is our conversation with Dr. Andrew Root. Well, we are here today with Dr. Andrew Root. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Would you just take a second to introduce yourself to our listeners? Let them know a little bit about who you are. That's always a a very dangerous thing to have to introduce yourself to a bunch of people because you can either undersell yourself or be incredibly a presumptuous a-hole. So (laughs) I'm going to try to, I'll try to avoid uh, both those things, but I I live in the Twin Cities. Um, I uh, teach at a school called Luther Seminary, which I've taught at for, oh, almost, well, 14 years about now. So it's been been a while and uh, I tend to write and research around, really around broad topics of ministry, but focus a lot on youth ministry, but uh, also a lot about pastoral ministry and kind of see myself as a practical theologian, but uh, yeah, do a lot of theological, yeah, just dialogue with a lot of theological questions as well. So, Awesome. Well, I know one of the more recent books you've written is called Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Youth Ministry in the Age of Science, which I just read recently. And I know even though you kind of wrote that book through a youth ministry lens, I think it applies to all areas of church ministry. And I'm just curious what inspired you to write that book and to focus on that particular topic. 
Yeah, well, um, that's a really good question. The reason I wrote that book particularly is uh, we had a grant, a, a, a John Templeton Foundation grant uh, that was with a, it's a very unsexy name. It's actually a terrible name. It was called Science for Youth Ministry. So I, we, I don't know if we had too much to drink or not enough to drink when we came up with the title of, of that grant, but that's what it was called. And so one of the, you, you, when you write a grant, you have all of these grandiose ideas of what you're going to do. And what, you know, you start writing things like, yeah, if you give us the money, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to change this and we're going to change that. And one of the things we said we were going to do is we we're going to write a book on faith and science for particularly for youth workers, but for pastors. And then I had to write it. So um, that's what kind of led me to write it. Um, but why I got interested in the topic of faith and science to begin with is because I think central to my own work has been thinking about how particularly in a secular age, particularly in the kind of cultural context we live in now, how hard it is as a, as a pastor and minister to try to point people to, to even give people an imagination for what I call divine action or for the living presence of God in their lives. And science seems to be a roadblock for some people when it comes to thinking about a personal God in the universe that they could pray to and who could answer their prayers. Big questions of being a scientifically rational person will come up or just a kind of mature person who could possibly believe in these ancient stories and yet, you know, believe in, um, in the Big Bang or something. So that's what led me into the topic. And I tried to wrestle with those questions really through the practice of ministry. Awesome. I, I'm involved in youth ministry as well. And I remember not too long ago, I did this social media response question with our students. And one of the questions I asked them was, why don't your friends believe in God? And one of the responses that I got that I thought was really interesting, the student said, they don't believe, my friends don't believe in God because they believe in science. And I'm just curious, why do you think so many people have this view that these two things, faith and science, are contradictory to each other? Yeah, I tried to really delve into that in the first part of the book and, and try to, to make an argument for that in uh, and, and, well, I guess an interpretation on why I think that happens. And at one level, I think a lot of a lot of the stuff you read about faith and science, a lot of the stuff that's out there in academia, can be really helpful for someone on the ground working in ministry. But in some ways, it isn't helpful because you can actually do a lot of philosophical work with like, well, what is theology and and what is science and what are the areas where they interact? But when you're a youth worker or you're a pastor and someone comes up to you and just asks a question like, well, how can I believe God is good? And we know that, well, evolutionary theory says that everything dies and that there's mass extinctions. How could there be a good God and be mass extinctions? Like as a pastor, you're thrust into that existential question. Um, and that becomes a big question where if you're just a theologian in an academic institution having a conference, you can kind of stay at more of the philosophical level. But when it comes directly to your question of why young people tend to believe that, I think it's because when we hear the word science, we're not really sure what we're talking about. And often when we hear the word science, I think particularly, like we did some, some research before I did this book, and when we would talk to youth workers particularly and pastors, when they heard science, they thought of something like, well, at its most hardcore, like Richard Dawkins, you know, the new atheists talking about um, about how religion is a mental illness or something. Um, or um, maybe the soft side of that is Neil deGrasse Tyson in, in, in the show Cosmos, where um, I like Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, my, my running joke is that I think all of America has to like Neil deGrasse Tyson because Stephen Colbert likes Neil deGrasse Tyson, like they're friends. So I think it's a law that because Stephen Colbert is a American treasure, we have to like whoever Stephen Colbert likes. But um, <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson tends to, he tends to kind of slide into this kind of sense of like, well, science tells us everything. And um, if you're the kind of person who, he would never say it like this, but he insinuates, like if you're dumb enough to have to believe that there are are religious answers to questions in the world, then that's too bad. But we already know that science has told us everything we need to know. And if we just keep following science, we'll solve every problem there is. And, and so I think when young people say that, what they hear is science as this 
thing, that you either have to choose this kind of worldview where everything is natural and material, there's no mysteries in the world, or if there are any mysteries, they're just puzzles that are yet to be solved. And then a more kind of religious framework that says actually there are mysteries within the universe and within our own spirit that there are no answers to that there's some parts of life that there just simply are no simple answers to and i think actual real scientific work say that scientists actually do is not as reductive as the neil degrasse tyson perspective but we so we're not really sure what we're putting in conversation when we say science and i think we get confused all the time we're like well science science and faith are in conflict it's because we think of those who are making a claim that science is a religion, and then those who believe in some kind of religious spiritual perspective, those things are in conflict. But when it actually comes to, say, the theory construction of evolution or the theory construction of cosmology, um, I don't think there's much as much of a conflict as we tend to think there is, that there's actually ways that those open up to all sorts of questions of mystery and, and being and, and, and things like that. So I think that's why young people do that. They think that there is a conflict and the media plays out there's a conflict and too often their pastors play out that there's this conflict. Um, but we haven't really gotten clear on what we mean by science. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And um, I think most of us here uh, would probably agree that um, these uh, that faith and science aren't as much at odds as most people think they are. Um, but I just wanted to ask, and maybe this question is is too related to what you just said. So if it is, I apologize. Um, but I often personally tend to think a lot about how can I reconcile faith and science. And, and in fact, I, I ask that question a lot, like, how do I reconcile my faith with science? Um, but here at the Better Questions podcast, we sometimes acknowledge that some questions might be more misguided than other questions, and there could be better questions we could be asking. And so I'm, I'm wondering from you, is there a better question we can ask than how do I reconcile faith and science? Like, is that question misguided? And if so, why? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a really nice way of putting it. I think in some senses it can be misguided. I mean, it can be misguided because we're confused on what we're actually asking, like what it, how does science and faith, faith relate, or even like how does science and religion relate? Like those are really, science and religion are two pretty artificial categories. Like there's no, no one, no one has a religion. You know what I mean? Like religion is a generic category. Um, people have particular expressions and practices inside a larger category we call religion. Like, you know, you just like Muslims and Buddhists are very different folks. They're both categorized in religion, but to really understand something significant about their practice, you actually have to participate in their practice. You actually have to get close to it. You can't just stand outside of it and say, well, that's all religion. And I think it works similarly with science. You can't just say, well, all science believes this. That one of the analogies I tend to use is that science really is just a big room of a bunch of people talking and having all sorts of different conversations. And to really figure out any coherence in that, you have to go in and have a conversation. I mean, the physicists are in one corner having a conversation, the biologists are in another, chemists are somewhere else, um, you know, social sciences, scientists don't know if they should be in the room or not. Like there's all sorts of things going on. So one of the things I try to tell people, is, especially as they think about this in the context of ministry, is that you should never do like a retreat on religion and science. That is absolutely boring. There's probably one person every 10 years who would be interested in that, and some philosophical kid or adult who um, no one likes to talk to anyhow. Like us? <laughs> like you guys. You were the one that no one wants to talk to at a retreat. Yeah. Um, no, but uh, but you could have a really interesting conversation on thinking about like prayer and research on like neurological conditions in the brain during meditative periods that so there's been all this research done like that all of a sudden becomes really interesting um like so taking a specific science and a and a specific um and a, and a specific like practice of faith becomes really interesting so i think where it becomes a bad question to get back to your to get back to your good question is that it, it becomes bad when we work in too big of generalizations um so like asking a question like well what do we know where where do we pray for healing and where do we trust God to heal? Or how how is the biblical text understood healing and how do we understand healing 
um, you know, now that we're, our church is right next to the Mayo Clinic. Like that becomes really an interesting conversation. What does it mean to be healed? Or what does it mean, um, or what, what does it mean for God to like interact with us and answer prayers? Like uh, I've mentioned a few times, like that becomes a much more interesting conversation than just as, well, is faith and science and conflict are, are, um, are, is religion open to science? Is science open to religion? Um, so I think the more specific you get, the more that it becomes quite an interesting conversation. Right. This is a, uh, a personal topic for me just because growing up, um, I had the weird combination of a interest in the Bible and an interest in science, which neither of those make you very popular. <laughs> so when you start mixing them, uh, it becomes like a personal thing to you because you're not just at the playground talking about science or the Bible. And, you know, I acted out my frustrations with the evil science teachers at my school in many weird ways that I would like to leave in the past. But a lot of it stemmed from, uh, you know, it was a bad idea to be like a young kid, like Googling this stuff and just listening to anyone who, who, who spoke on the topic. And it seemed like the root cause was I was trying to find how the Bible spoke about science. And I would just like to know from your perspective, is that even a worthwhile goal? Like, can we even look to the Bible to speak on science? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it, 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 this will be the, the total like academic cop-out answer to this really <laughs> important question but in some ways i don't think we can and in other ways i think we have to allow it to in other words i think mm-hmm. the bible does have something to say about what it means to live a human life what it means to um seek for a sense of the good or the encounter with um with, with god and that all i think matters to making sense of our human life but i don't think we can turn this the the bible into a science book and say well i mean the bible says the, that uh, that Joshua, when Joshua was in the middle of his battle, that the sun moved. So clearly, you know, like like these are arguments that Galileo had problems with in in his time. Like, well, the Bible says the sun moved, not not that the earth moved. So therefore, um, I think if you try to make this the Bible be a scientific book, you're in big trouble. And I don't think that that undercuts its importance or even its authority. I think that the Bible speaks. Um, very, very trustworthy on who God is and how God acts. And so that does tell us something about what the human story is. So I don't think we can, I also don't want to be, keep those things completely separate. I, I guess I'm one that wants to see us to have dialogue between those things. And so some of the claims that the Bible makes about what it means to live a human life, I think can, especially to some science, like say cognitive, certain cognitive sciences and things like that, there should be a point of conversation, but if we expect the Bible to say anything about physics or anything about biology, I think we're asking the Bible to do something that it's not intended to do, um, that it's really trying to tell us the story of Israel's encounter with this God and who this Jesus Christ is that is born, lives, dies, and and is risen again. Like that's what the Bible really is ultimately up to. But it does make certain claims, like this Jesus of Nazareth, was dead and lives again. And, um, and that does come up against certain claims of science, which is, you know, like to quote the old lost line, dead is dead. Like you don't, no one comes back from that. So those do put, put us in some kind of conflict. So I think it would be unfair to our people to be like, well, no, if you do it right, there's no conflict between faith and science. No, there, I mean, there, there's certain conflicts here, like dead equals dead, or no, there was a human being who was the fullness of God, which we don't know how that works, who, who um, came back from the dead. Those, th- those are kind of levels of conflict, but they're also very similar to just narratives and discourse. You know, that as human beings, we always need stories to make sense of our lives. And there's ways that science gives us stories that can be helpful, that can be informative. And there's ways that the biblical text, as well as the theological tradition, gives us stories. And we're always, I mean, we're always these kind of hermeneutical animals that are trying to make sense of multiple stories. And um, and I think when it comes to the context of ministry, that's really why, uh, or when you're drawn into having a faith and science conversation, is when someone says, well, science tells this story, or at least part of science, or this scientific theory tells this story, but the Bible tells this story. How do I make sense of that? 
And I think one of the beautiful things about the biblical text is even inherently within it, it's not always all that, well, it's it's not modern. You know, it's not really concerned right. with synthesizing all stories. That's not its objective. Like, we tend to want, like, well, this needs to all be coherent and make sense. And um, I think... I think we're not that great of storytellers and people from other times who are better storytellers um, or have a more dynamic sense of story allow allow multiple things to be at play in a story and things that seem inconsistent actually to not be inconsistent. They just do, they're just reflect a surplus of story itself. Right. I'm, I'm curious too, if um, maybe you can speak to the other way around, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm wondering if you can speak to the other way around, like is science, a reliable source for some of the deeper meaning questions of life that we look to the Bible for. Because I know sometimes if I listen to, uh, you mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson, he can start to talk about the parts of the universe we still don't understand. And he sounds like downright biblical almost, or like he's writing a mystical psalm or something. Um, and you can get a sense that there's a lot of, of people in the scientific camp that are kind of thought leaders in the space that almost look at science as a religion, Th- though they wouldn't use those terms. You can kind of get that from what they're saying. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to, um, do you think that you that works as a you know worldview in and of itself? And do you think that lines up with what you see as the goal of science? Yeah, um, I, I think that I think there clearly are some, and I, it's really interesting. And I don't have all these these studies in front of me right now, but it is interesting that people who are doing different scientific work tend to be more open to like larger what we would call metaphysical questions than others. You know, so for instance, like physicists and cosmologists tend to there there tends to be more kind of people who are theists in that camp, and the more the atheists are, it's ironic, you wouldn't think this, but in a lot of sciences, the, the, the science that has the most atheists in it are actually psychologists, which uh, hmm. seems really interesting because it goes at this level. I mean, if you're kind of thinking about the expanse of the universe, you all of a sudden are thrown back into your smallness. And, you know, when you think about how freaking huge, um, that's a scholarly phrase, how, how, <laughs> how, how huge this, uh, this universe is, that you, you quickly get thrust back into how utterly small you are or how expansive time is. You know, like you do the cosmological calendar, um, the old Carl Sagan cosmological calendar, and you realize, like, conscious human existence, if you put the whole, the whole of the universe's existence onto a calendar, it's, we've well, been here like two minutes, you know, like we're right. such a short, short time that you can't help but feel small. And then you're thrust into that smallness and then you have an either or, you know, that you're either, you either have to recognize, wow, there has to be some mystery out there that's beckoning to me, or we're so insignificant, there's no meaning at all out there. Um, and so that, that tends to lead some people to be theists, like, well, we're so small, there's got to be something, there's got to be some, something out there. Where it's interesting with psychologists is the, the really tricky thing, of course, about, about a certain kind of scientific atheism is if you just tell yourself all this is, and Neil deGrasse Tyson does this in one of the episodes of, Co- of uh, Cosmos, where he's ba- basically all religion is is false pattern recognition. That's all it is. Like, we are the kind of beings that have to create some kind of meaning. We have to look for purpose. And he's doing this around comets. Like, you know, throughout human history, when, the, when there's been a comet, we have this all recorded across the globe that when people see a comet, they give meaning to it. It means there's going to be a drought. It means that there's gonna, a king's going to die. It means, you know, earthquake's going to come. It means something. And his whole point is, well, we know exactly what it is now. It, it, it doesn't have any other bigger meaning to it. It's a mathematical reality. And we can actually trace it and we can see it come again. And it's, it's working off an orbit. Um, but, you know, this is what it means to be a human being is that we look for patterns. And that allows us to be pretty good scientists. But it also allows us to do pretty silly things like look for God in a grilled cheese sandwich. Or he insinuates, like, just create religions at all like you know that just needs some kind of personal force to be be doing something so it becomes kind of an either or that we are these kind of conscious beings who have to find meaning and so you're kind of stuck with well we're the kind of conscious beings who have to find meaning so we make this stuff all this stuff up or we're the kind of conscious beings who have to seek for meaning because we're creating an image of a god who is a conscious relational being and and so i don't think science and in some ways i don't think faith can ever really solve or i should say religion or institutionalized religions can ever solve the either or question and that it really does be kind of become a question of faith and i think one of the things we have to help 
our people understand is if you claim kind of with Neil deGrasse Tyson or um, Richard Dawkins that, listen, it's just false pattern recognition. Listen, it's just the, the universe is so huge that you mean nothing, that that's a faith claim, too. Right. That, that, that's just as much as a faith claim, too. And it may be a legitimate one. I mean, I don't want to minimize it. It may be a legitimate uh, uh, up against the data. It may be a legitimate faith claim. But it is just as much of a legitimate faith claim for me to claim, as a lot of physicists and cosmologists do, that actually we're so small, and yet these beings who can love and who can think and need meaning and can extend our consciousness, that, man, there's got to be there's got to be something more. There's got to be a force. And, I've, and, and those are empirical experiences too. I've prayed and I've, I've seen God move in my life and bring transformation. So in faith too, I believe that there is a God who beckons me and gives me meaning and directs my life. That both of those are faith claims. And I think one of the things we should be careful of, and it gets back to your bad question, bad question thing, is we should be careful and not try to extinguish the either or or try to solve it, or be threatened by it, but I think we just, we should be okay with it. Yeah, you're right. There is either an utter surplus of meaning here, um, of a God who is moving and doing things, and calling us, and created us in this unique way, or this is all just random. Um, And you know what? Both have plausibility to them, and now we have to kind of look within our own experience, look within the histories of humanity and um, ask our big questions and, and, and be willing to seek for answers to those and, and go where they lead us. I, I don't think we should be threatened by that. I think that should really open us up. And you know what? You got, that was such a good question. I don't even remember what the original question was. <laughs> well, that, that was great. And what, one of the things from the book that I thought was really helpful for me is you kind of explained how for so many Christians or, or people in the faith community, because we're operating with such broad categories, we assume that embracing any sort of scientific finding is the same thing as embracing the ideology that everything is random and there is no meaning. And so you you kind of pointed out how when people of faith become really defensive towards science, it's ultimately because of their inability to reconcile that with their idea of a personal God. And I'm curious if, just because I thought that was so helpful, if you can maybe elaborate on that a little more and then talk about how we begin to reconcile different scientific findings with the idea of a personal God. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is, and I, idea that I've been pretty convinced by with, with Charles Taylor, who this is this Canadian philosopher who wrote this uh, big book that I've been into for a number of years called The Secular Age. And it's a, a big book trying to answer just one question. You know, it's like it makes you want to vomit that he's just trying to answer one question. It takes him 750 pages to answer the one <laughs> question. You, you know, you think you've had long conversations on the phone with someone. I mean, this is unbelievable. Um, but his one question is like, why in 1500? And he's just talking about kind of Western Europe and in those who are the legacy of kind of Western Europe, North America, um, particularly, and saying like, why in 1500 was it nearly impossible for people not to believe in God in the West. And in a short 500 years later, it's not only possible now to not believe in God, it's much easier for people to not believe in God than to believe in God. And so he tries to answer that question. And one of the things he talks about is the move towards science and what science does. And and this is just really informative to me. He he, he says, you know, um, the the kind of perspective, what you're pointing to here, that, that happens sometime around the 19th century is this certain assertion, and it's been really picked up by these, these authors and TV personalities we've been talking about, that basically says, listen, if, if you are someone who needs to believe in a personal God, um, if you need that to function, well, that's fine. But for me, I've outgrown that. Like, I, I don't need that anymore. I've out, actually outgrown that. And so this becomes the position of maturity. Like, when you grow up, you'll throw off the cloak um, that's keeping you warm of religion and actually be a brave person. And Taylor's perspective, who's a deeply believing Catholic, says, you know what, that if the way that you were raised were in really kind of flat 
kind of religious education, really flat um, Christian formation, um, where all you were doing was coloring sheets and you were given really stupid answers of, about things, really simple answers, which I guess goes to the heart of your guys' podcast and why asking good questions is so important. If you were ever in a, a, a in church life that you never asked good questions, then all of a sudden that makes a ton of sense. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. This is completely immature, and this is this is completely dumb. You're right. Why? I, and wow, I feel so free to throw that off. But if you've actually, you know, sat with your grandmother and watched her pray every night over your grandfather as he died of cancer, you all of a sudden, or been with a community that made it through kind of forms of oppression through prayer, and um, you know, communities during the civil rights movement, or or in other countries who have who have found deep Christian practices as a way to deal with oppression and deal with deal with things. All of a sudden, you can't see that as as immature. It becomes something much different than that. So I do think then the crux becomes is can we be the kind of people who live and believe in a personal God? Is that is that possible? Um, and to me, it does become a kind of either or question. But what becomes unavoidable is the fact that we're personal beings and that we that we need um, these kind of personal relationships. So one of the ways I wrote the book was like through this story. I kind of wrote it as it was a, in, in some ways it was a way just to keep the reader engaged in a science book to not become too philosophical. But in another way, it was a, a kind of montage uh, or homage, I should say, an homage to um, Galileo's um uh, Galileo's writing, who Galileo wrote things as like, like a, a dialogue between characters, which he made a very bad political misstep because he put the Pope's uh, the Pope's negative kind of theory in the in the mouth of a character he called Simpleton, and that was uh, not really a smart political move on Galileo's point, and, and got him into some hot water. So I tried to write it in a similar way as this kind of youth worker having these these experiences, and one of the characters I, I wrote was this father who's a um, a kind of engineer, physicist guy, and his basic point is that you know that it, it, that faith really does is embedded in in the realities of communities of of people, and so what helped him come to believe was really this sense of praying with other people and having these personal encounters with other people, and for him that opens up the possibility that the universe itself um, kind of points to this sense of otherness that calls for. Um, kind of personal encounter. And so I was trying to play with that idea, working a little bit more with kind of orthodox sources that um, John Zazulis and others who kind of talk about the about the world even being constituted in, in this way of, of, uh, of personal encounter and an encounter within it. And so um, I don't know if that's getting at your question, actually, but um, that's where I would start. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I was wondering if maybe you could give an example with the uh, theory of evolution of like, how, how would you approach that topic if someone were to say, hey, I, I am convinced by this scientific finding, but I'm struggling to figure out how I reconcile this with my belief and experience of a personal God. What would that conversation look like for you? Yeah, I mean, for me, there'd be a couple elements that I would I would want to point out, and um, I mean, first of all, I would want to point out I think I think there's just a ton, especially within the church, of just kind of historical illiteracy when it comes to science. Like we we tend to think like Galileo was thrown in jail and beaten multiple times for saying that you know that the Earth revolved around the sun, um, and almost every kid in a in a youth group believes that. It's like, how many of you have heard this? They'll raise their hands, and it's just simply not true. That Galileo was never put in jail for saying this. He was put on house arrest in his villa outside of Florence, which probably saved his life from the plagues. But um, he was never beaten. He was never put in jail. He did get in some hot water. But the same is true with Darwin, that we tend to think of Darwin as, uh, I guess my joke is I think of Dar people tend to, in the church at least, to think of Darwin as the love child between like Hannibal Lecter and Darth Vader or something, you know. Um, and <laughs> And he uh, and he's really not. I mean, here's a guy who was a, a, he failed out of medical school, who ends up at Cambridge and is studying for the ministry and is going to be a pastor. And basically, he spends his time um, looking for beetles, and then kind of has his breakthrough as he goes on the on the um, on the beagle and uh, has has that experience. But Darwin never really thought of evolution as disproving faith. 
what led Darwin to never go to church again was not that he thought in the, in the theory of evolution that God couldn't be there. As a matter of fact, Asa Gray, who was an American colleague of his who he wrote many of his letters to, was a, was a strong believing Presbyterian, and he thought that this that evolution was exactly how God would create. Um, and so, telling that story is important. But the reason Darwin never went to church um, was not because of the theory of evolution. It was because his uh, his nine, eight, nine year old daughter uh, died in his arms, and he just simply couldn't go back to church after the loss of of. Anna. So it was really this personal experience that was significant. So first of all, I'd want to tell people to look more deeply at Darwin's story, to see a human being there coming up with this, not someone who's rating against faith. But the second thing about evolution is that evolution does lead us with this conflict, like I mentioned earlier, that everything does die and mass extinctions are coming and more things, more more creatures, more insects, more mammals, uh, more dinosaurs um, have are dead than ever lived before, or, you know, are dead now than are, uh, are, are dead than have ever lived. Like this is, there's, there's an incredible amount of extinction that's happened here. So that does lead us to a conflict of, well, what is, does God care about these things? What does it mean for the, for the future of humanity? But to me, the ultimate place that comes down that we never really tell people much about is to get to the kind of creatures that we are, that you have to have what these sci- scientists say is a second or sometimes they call it a third big bang like the movement from lower hominids to the kind of thinking hominids that we are um is just an remarkable remarkable jump like to move from every ten thousand years the biggest advance is a another quarter inch in a spear spear flint to all of a sudden bam you know you get cave paintings and then you get agriculture and then you get royal monarchies and then you get cathedrals and then you get netflix like this is an incredible (laughs) incredible um incredible jump like it's, it's just an incredible jump and so you know up until right now we really are the only animals who think about thinking and um and so that again that leaves you with an either or either that was a really weird way for nature to just randomly go or maybe there is some kind of vocation within the created realm that we that we that we are called to and so i think theologically it is this question of of what do we do with death and um for me there's a big difference and i follow carl bart on this a big difference between death and dying and i think part of the vocation of humanity to be these hominids who think about thinking that our job is to minister to all of creation as it dies and even minister to one another. But once, um, you know, a, a certain form of sin and brokenness enters into the world, dying becomes a horrific nightmare called death that leads to isolation. Um, but, uh, but inherently, even if, say, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, I think we would still have dying, but maybe not death. Uh, not the, the, the torture of death, but we'd still have, have dying. So in some ways, we could see um, sin as uh, Adam and Eve, or to go with that kind of story, we could see Adam and Eve as uh, refusing to be the ministers who who stand with creation um, and and help it into its process of 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 dying. And uh, once they refuse that vocation, you know, death is is uh, cascaded throughout the created realm, um, and that gives a lot of significance to human beings. But again, we are these. Until the aliens show up, man, we are these really weird, weird animals who think about thinking, you know, like we know other animals have amazing intelligence, like fish can remember things for a long time and dolphins have language and whales do incredible things, but none of them, I mean, none of them have created an iPhone, you know, none of them have have a library, uh, this kind of sense of culture that we do. And it's, you know, it's really fascinating to think about human beings that compared to like Neanderthals, we have smaller brains than Neanderthals, but our brains are much more fluid and that we seem to actually offload a lot of, um, a lot of the things we need to know onto the cloud, essentially. And what we would call it as culture that we've created cultures that hold a lot of this information we need to know. And um, it appears that most, um, you know, uh, uh, anthropologists um, don't think that, like, hominids had music or symbolic. Uh, they seem to bury their dead, but not symbolically. Um, like I said, they didn't have music. Um, we don't think they had any kind of form of art. And uh, it connects to another book I wrote called The Grace of Dogs, that they don't think that they had dogs or wolves mm-hmm. that became dogs. And there's actually a theory from 
an anthropologist that thinks that what led us to win the, the kind of battle between hominids and Neanderthals um, in Europe, particularly during the Ice Age, that allowed um, humans, Homo sapiens, to kind of to to survive was that we found a way to domesticate wolves, and they didn't, and that uh, that really did a lot for us. And uh, so yeah, so we're we're so yeah. we're weird creatures. So I think when we think about evolution, that to be able to affirm that yes, that we are animals, and that there's something that's threatening for some people in that, I don't think there should be anything threatening. But then to also say that at the other hand, that we are really weird, unique animals, um, and really strange animals and and that i think that's an affirmation of faith and so but i do think it's it's unchristian to not be to be animals that we are fundamentally created beings as the nicene creed says um about jesus that he's true god of true god begotten but not made well we are not jesus and we are begotten and made creatures um and that's what makes jesus i think so unique at least in nicene christianity yeah 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 and uh thanks for sharing that i think one of the really cool things you just said uh, there was a lot, but something that jumped out at me was was that there could be this idea of dying without death. Uh, distinguishing between those two things is is um, is really cool. And jumping from that, uh, I just wanted to share some experience I've had recently um, uh, through series of events uh, that I didn't even really think was a big deal. Um, people have found out that I lean more on like theistic evolution side. I, I work at a church and it caused just a little bit of a stir at the church that I work at. And it's caused me to have several conversations um, with people that, you know, look at the Bible uh, a little bit more literally in, in the creation narrative than I do. And that whole, that just had a lot of follow-up questions for me. And one of the main ones was actually um, that they, perceive that the Bible says that death came as a result of the fall. Um, and evolution obviously requires a whole lot of death, as you alluded to. Um, and there's many, many other just biblical uh, points that they can that they come to uh, that I have answered in those conversations. Uh, but I'm wondering from you, like, what's the best way or a better way from your perspective that we can interact with people that think something different uh, than us, that that can bring both sides of that together and that can walk away like still brothers in Christ and sisters, still friends. <laughs> we can still take communion together. Like we can still be at the same church. Uh, we may not agree, but at least we have some respect um, and not just like, well, you've crossed that line in the sand, so I can't talk to you anymore. Um how, how do you think we can do that and have better conversations regarding this topic? Yeah, that's 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 a great question. I mean, it is amazing how much this this conversation can be threatening to people. And I do think it's because exactly like you said that if you go this route, then all of a sudden you undercut the Bible. And if you undercut the Bible, then you're not on my team. You're on another team. And then we enter into all sorts of kind of culture wars thing. Um, I guess it, you know I, I would go back to what I was just kind of saying is that. Uh, to me, like something like Nicene Christianity and and those kind of creedal statements are a very central thing. And so, if we can, to to me, I don't know how your your listeners will feel about this, but to me, the, the whether uh, whether creation happened in you know uh, billions of years or whether it happened in seven days, it doesn't ultimately really matter. I think that really what matters for the centrality of faith is who we say this Jesus Christ is. And so once we get clear on who we confess this Jesus Christ is, um, then that just, to me, it's, it all becomes a very periphery question. I know the, the response is, well, if you don't believe exactly what the Bible says at the beginning, then how can you trust what the Bible says later about Jesus? And then this whole thing falls apart. But I, you know, I think that is to give the Bible too much weight as almost making it the fourth person of the trinity and that the bible's mm. job is to continually to testify to who this jesus christ is but this jesus christ comes to us living um, and this jesus christ comes to us in this community of prayer and confession so i think one of the ways to do that again is for us to have to know each other's stories enough of why we trust in who this jesus christ is and that our our faith is embedded in our own encounter with jesus christ i mean it's really interesting that orthodox christians tend not to even say like we do as protestants particularly like the gospel the gospel the gospel the gospel we believe the gospel because 
because they really see what the gospel is is embedded in direct experiences like Mary's experiences, like John's experience, um, that the experience of the encounter of the living Christ is what gives faith. And so I think we have to be more more focused on that, that we trust each other, that we know each other's stories about that encounter. And then we can really wrestle with these these other questions. And that part of what it means to be a human being, what's really exciting about it is trying to answer the question of what is a lifetime and why do we live it? And how do we make sense of it? In which stories inform us? And I think we have to have a little bit more um, sensitivity with each other, a little bit more openness to allow people to give their best account on what, what they think they're, what makes their life livable or what gives them a sense of why they're here in the first place. But at the same time, now I think in some ways social media has made us so sensitive to evaluate people, I think, that then we don't allow someone's best account to be given and be able to say to them, that's really interesting, but I don't buy it. And this is why this is why I believe this. Um, or this is this is this is the story that that um, that even in a small even a small story, maybe not the most formative story of my identity is what I believe this. And, I, and so I think, you know, stories about origins to me are not as central as the stories about um, how have you had an encounter with, with, this, with, this living, with this living Christ. But I do think that there, I think part of the importance for us here, which goes back to the question about personal, personal encounter, is that um, I do think the Christian faith is embedded on us having a, a personal encounter with, with, with a, a living God who speaks, who moves. And um, but I, you know, I don't think that that precludes evolution. Say, um, uh, you know, like what you're saying about the biblical text. I mean, that I, I personally don't think you have to have a historical Adam and Eve. But Paul makes it really hard when Paul um, equates uh, Jesus as the new humanity and Adam as the old humanity. That that makes it much harder to be like, well, Adam and Eve stand for um, these certain hominids who came of consciousness that they could hear God actually speaking. Um, and so I think we could beautifully say that, that God cared deeply about Neanderthals, but that these homo sapiens who had extended consciousness had a particular vocation. And that vocation was to actually hear um, God's God speak and, um, and respond to God. And I think the, the, the Early, early Genesis texts talk about walking the cool of the garden with God and being in conversation with God. We are the animals, as as the theologian Robert Jensen says, we're the praying animals. We're the animals who pray. Um, and I don't know. Maybe once we get to that, uh, we can have a conversation. But it's uh, it's we're not living in the golden age of discourse and conversation. I you know, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the conversation has kind of eluded this. But it seems that a lot of the problems with the, this conversation about science and faith or evolution in the Bible come back to our stories that we tell ourselves and like our overarching narratives. And it seems that a lot of people don't necessarily, from what they say, have a problem with science or evolution. They have a problem with taking God's word seriously, which is what I hear a lot. And I've, I'm wondering from your perspective, are there healthy ways to interpret or reinterpret specifically like the Genesis texts in a way that is honoring God's word. Because I think a fear for a lot of people is I don't want to start handling the Bible loosely and doing things recklessly. And so I'd love to hear your opinion on what are some ways that you can interpret the the Old Testament or Genesis in a way that is honoring God's word and isn't being crazy or reading into the text and and so forth like that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what I would say is that uh, you honor the text and allow the text to even have authority in your life when you expect it to um, speak to you about who God is and how God acts. And that in many ways, we need to read the text, but we also need the text to read our own lives. And yeah, yeah. So, so bringing our own experiences, our, 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 our own stories, and asking the text to read our lives, I think, um, is a much harder thing, but it's also a much more beautiful thing. So I think you have to actually go into the text and expect that God is going to speak to you through it. And what's ironic is a lot of people who need everything to be right, like every historical detail, every scientific idea, is that they actually come to the text to protect 
some kind of integrity of the text, not to see the text as this vehicle in which God speaks to us through. Mm. So I think it actually is a higher view of a living personal God to say, we are going to pick up this text and for 2,000, 3,000 years, God has spoken to us through this text and we're going to expect it to do the same. That's a quite different kind of assertion then we're going to pick up this text and this text is everything it ever says is exactly right and we're going to try to follow everything it says no one can do that i mean when when jesus says you know um if your eye causes you to sin pluck it out no one does that i mean everyone interprets that text in a certain way um but there when it's that text is interpreted i think beautifully is when we read our lives next to it what is it actually saying about how we live our lives and um and so i i you know, it, it's it, some, something has happened for the last 50, 60 years where we thought the litmus test is do you believe everything in it as opposed to you go to it expectantly, ex, you know, for it to speak, for God to speak through it. And that becomes a very different kind of authority that you give to the text. And then I also just think that we've done this service with the text that we, re, we expect people to primarily read it alone as opposed to read it in communities of people. And that right. the Bible, really, the Bible to me, really, first and foremost, is a communal book that you read with with people. But usually, we give you know fourth graders their Bibles at church, and they're like, "Now take this home, read it every day by yourself." And then the exception is when they get to stand with a bunch of adults um, or a bunch of people across generations and read a text and try to articulate what it means to them or how it reads their own life. Where it really should be flipped. Where the more unusual thing is, um, well, I mean, you could hopefully do both, but the more unusual thing is that you read it by yourself, but you're always reading it with a community of people living very different kinds of lives, people um, from different ages, maybe people from different backgrounds. Um, I think that's when the text kind of comes alive. So to me, I, I feel like I have a very high view of scripture. I expect God to speak through it, but that doesn't mean that I have to assume that we had seven 24-hour days of creation but i expect that story to tell me something more profound about how how sinful i am about how much i need a living god to come and speak to me about the dignity of the created realm and so i think another element maybe is to remember that there are multiple um creation stories in the biblical text and that it's not just the genesis one because that's i mean usually that's what people want to fight over or or feel threatened by but like job has a creation story in it um, it's a very kind of different creation story um, where God basically tells overinflated humanity that God cares about all sorts of weird crap. You know, like basically that God takes Job on a cosmic adventure and shows Job all sorts of weird things. It's like, you see this weird bird? You like this weird bird? You know why this weird bird is here? Because I like it. I God takes joy in this created realm. And so there's there's something beautiful about thinking about the multiple creation stories that exist there too, which it's been too much of a battle over Genesis and seven days of creation or not, which seems like a really odd, weird thing. And like Augustine never read the text like that. Never Augustine never assumed to read the text like that. Um, and so, you know, like our church fathers read the biblical text in this very allegorical way because they were wanting the text, they were expecting the text to read their life. So they were, you know, they were allowing the text to read their lives. So they read it not in this literal sense, but in this allegorical sense that brought them into this encounter, this eventful encounter with a living God. And to me, that's that's what the Christian faith is about—the eventful encounter with the living God who comes to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Yep. Now the real question is, what does the church do with artificial intelligence? Yeah, because <laughs> that's coming up, and we need we need some answers. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I and it is so beyond my pay grade to have an answer for that. Um, but you know, but that is a that is the issue, and one of the things that's really at stake here is if we don't do what your podcast here is really recommending, which start jumping into difficult questions and helping people be able to wrestle with even big questions that don't have easy answers or maybe even any answer. That you know crap's going to happen, man. Like, you know, things are going to happen out of Silicon Valley or out of China in some gene editing somewhere. And there are going to be big issues about what it means to be a human being, about um, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, the church has not been beyond other times where we've had to stand up for really ethical 
ethical situations and claim that we don't we think that this violates what it means to be human and um that could be right around the corner and so my gosh we will not be ready if people are for real big questions at stake about about the future of humanity if we're arguing about well was it 24 hours or was it more than that like arguing about that will not allow us to be ready for terminator or um or you don't care about the answer to that (laughs) (laughs) So anyhow, I mean, there, and, and I guess that does go back to me, you know why I write the book about youth ministry is that because young people, yeah, we need to we need to save their faith, I guess if you want to say it in that kind of lame way, um, by helping them deal with these questions. But there's big stuff coming up, and um, they need to be able to wrestle with them, and they're going to be big questions. About you what heard it, it here first. Our podcast will answer those questions. We will be leading the charge of artificial intelligence. You need to find somebody more qualified, and that needs to be the <laughs> next podcast. And what do you do with gene editing and uh, artificial intelligence? And when all the dystopian movies become true. Yep. <laughs> well, hey, we really appreciate your time. I'd love to end by asking you this last question. Uh, what I feel like I've heard you saying is one of the ways we ask better questions when it comes to this topic is to start dealing with more specific categories and maybe ask, well, how does this specific finding relate to my faith in a personal God? And I'm curious, what's maybe an example of a scientific finding that for you personally just kind of blew your mind in regards to what it said about your faith in a personal God? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it echoes back what I've said before, like reading this kind of, well, reading this uh paleoanthropology you know like to me that that is just shockingly mysterious stuff i mean thinking about what it would be like for this this pod of hominids to all of a sudden start having extended consciousness and be able to um dream and and uh and and think extended thoughts and i i do happen to be a dog lover and did write this book called the grace of dogs and thought about like dogs as our spiritual um wingman or 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 wingwoman who sits beside us and allowed human beings to both sleep late into the night because you know to extend your consciousness you need to be able to get ample hours of sleep and to have dogs sleeping next to you so that you could actually enter into REM sleep where you would actually have spiritual experiences. We have all sorts of spiritual experiences that happen through dreams and the biblical texts and other places that you would need to have some kind of ability to sleep through the night and not worry that some other beast was going to eat out your stomach, you know? So to have dogs as these sentinel alarm systems and then to sit in a field and be able to daydream and essentially to pray and to have a dog sit next to you and essentially guard you while you do that. And we know all this stuff from these scientists who study animals that if a, if a predator is going to attack, but even a little chihuahua sees it, if it, it's called eye, that the, it will not attack. Like a tiger will not attack if it's been seen even by a much smaller predator because it's all about the sneak. So you can imagine being able to daydream. So I, I just think there's a really interesting way of thinking about how people – and maybe with their dogs, this gets weird, right? But people with their dogs, but th- these people who started to to actually have this extended consciousness um, as the, as these created animals that all of a sudden they could hear God speak. And I guess it's the either or again. We could just say they were delusional, and yeah, their minds allowed them to do great things, but they had to make up God so that they could deal with the fact that they were going to die. Or we could say, yeah, no, this created world is so beautiful and mysterious that eventually God created the conditions and actually nursed along, ministered creation along, that these certain animals would come along who would pray and who would write and who would sing songs to this God and who would minister to the, the rest of creation as it, as it died. So to me, that, that, um, that uh, kind of evolutionary um, um, kind of thoughts are really interesting. So the paleoanthropology stuff is really interesting. And, it, and I guess that you know, go back, goes back to the question, contrasting paleoanthropology and, and, um, and really getting into that as, as opposed to just like um, reductionistic evolution is a very different kind of thing. Um, long answer to a good question. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks again. Uh, before we let you go, we just want to give you an opportunity to tell people um, – where they can find more about you and interact more with your work. And I'd love to also ask if you can throw in other resources people should uh, check out if they want to learn more just about this topic in general. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So if people want to find me, they can, uh, I have a website that's just andrewroot.org. You can find me there. You can find um, this book, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs and Zombies, which is the craziest title ever, but it's <laughs> supposed to pique your interest, not just, you know, faith and science. Um, so you can find that on Amazon. And I also have a book called um, Faith Formation in a Secular Age in a new book called The Pastor in a Secular Age coming out in a, um, in a few months. So you can check that out. You can find me on Twitter and things like that. And if you're looking for other resources, I'd point people to um, our grants website, which has a bunch of resources, videos you can use, articles. Um, There's some videos that are directly related to this that are kind of uh, animated, but also uh, they're set up to allow for discussion in, in adult education and in, in, in kind of youth ministry classes. And that website is uh, uh, sciencym.org. So you can definitely check that out. And then I would say, you know, people should be reading someone like Pokinghorn and, and uh folks like that who have uh, have really been some good thinkers along these lines so yeah it's been great to be with you thanks for having me guys yeah, yeah thank, thank you so you. much this was thank awesome. you hey congrats you just finished an episode of the better questions podcast by rewarding yourself you can subscribe and watch more, which is the best reward possible. So if you'd like to learn more, you can subscribe on our YouTube page, you can follow us on Facebook, you can join our Patreon page, and you can get more of this great content. Don't forget about Instagram. We're on Instagram as well, at Podcast. Right. And if you have any complaints about the episode, you can email us at chrisnelson at gmail.com. That's not my email, so it'll go to some other Chris Nelson who would be happy to hear your complaints. <laughs> Well, it was worth a try. Thank you so much for watching and for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Better Questions podcast. Whatever the theme song is. What is that, Batman? I'm keeping this in, guys. It does sound a little like Batman. Questions! Yeah, we have a full episode where we just try and remember our theme song. It's none of us can. Do 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 do. Oh.